Word Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. I'm your host, Laura. I have a short historical case for you guys today. Today's information comes from the book Murder in the Mile High City by Linda Womack and Linda Jones, as well as the official website for the United States Mint. As you all know, Denver is one of four United States cities that currently has an operational mint. Mints in the United States are, of course, a unit of the Department of Treasury that produces coinage for the United States, and they don't actually produce any paper money. There are currently four that are used solely for coin production in the U.S., one in Denver, one in Philadelphia, one in San Francisco, and one in West Point, New York. A handful have existed and have since been decommissioned, including one in North Carolina, Georgia, New Orleans, Carson City, Nevada, and even one in the Philippines that was a U.S. branch mint. The Denver Mint is, in fact, the largest producer of coins in the entire world. The Denver Mint was established in 1904, and I'll say that some sources do say 1906. The formation of the Mint started with the massive gold rush of the 1800s in the Rocky Mountains, and the city of Denver and its mining communities and businessmen needed assayer services and a good bank to handle all of that gold that was flowing out of the mountains. Brothers Austin and Milton Clark arrived from Kansas in 1860, along with their partner, Emmanuel H. Gruber, and they received three town lots for $600 from the Denver Town Company and because their preceding reputation was that they were all honorable bankers. They erected their building at what is now known as 16th and Market Streets, and they put up a sign on the top of it that said Bank and Mint, and it opened officially in July of 1860. With all of the gold that was pouring out of the mountains, business was booming, and when the territory of Colorado was created only a year later in 1861, another business associate named James T. Clark, not associated with the family, was appointed treasurer by the territorial governor at that time. The U.S. government purchased this small bank and mint operation in 1863 for the purpose of producing standard U.S. Treasury coinage, but rumor had it that the U.S. government was really incensed by the creation of this mint that was at that time outside of the U.S. territory, and it was actually producing coinage worth more than U.S. coins due to a higher gold content inside of them. So now the building was a federal mint, and it experienced its first robbery in 1864 when yet another man with the last name of Clark, of no relation to the others, and a former accountant of the Rocky Mountain News, got a job as a pay clerk at the Mint in December of 1863. In his position, he embezzled over $37,000, which is equal to around three quarters of a million dollars in today's money. The theft was realized in February of 1864, and Clark escaped on a horse that was loaded down with gold bars. But the horse couldn't carry the weight of all of those gold bars, and Clark himself had to abandon the horse and make his way south on foot, carrying and dragging all of these gold bars in bags. So Clark was caught slowly meandering south of Colorado Springs within six days and was brought to trial and told to leave Colorado Territory. When he was found, he was already $4,000 short. And what exactly happened to that gold in that short amount of time is anyone's guess. 
1904, the Mint was officially moved to a new, large building on West Colfax, located right behind the Denver County Courts and near Civic Center Park. And once all this is over, consider going on one of their free tours. In 1921, the new Mint had its own inside job robbery. An employee named Orville Harrington was singled out after gold bars went missing on his shift. Authorities followed him home, and they discovered 40 gold bars buried in his backyard and another 50 in his basement. Orville had a wooden leg, and it was suspected that he smuggled the bars inside of this wooden leg from the bank. He was charged with larceny, and he was sentenced to Colorado State Pen, but was paroled after just three years, and he and his family then went to Florida. But the meat of today's story is the Great Mint Robbery of 1922, a crime that played out like a classic 1920s gangster-style robbery in broad daylight on the streets of Denver. At 10.30 a.m. on a cold morning, and I'm sure that if you guys listen to this when I'm recording this, you can think of a cold morning pretty easily, December 18th, 1922. An armored Federal Reserve truck pulled up to the entrance of the Denver Mint to receive a transfer of $200,000, all in $5 bills. And they were going to be sending this to the Federal Reserve Branch Bank in Denver. Just two guards were tasked with carrying this money to the armored car. And as they did so, a Buick touring car roared up behind them and said, hands up. Four men with handkerchiefs around their face were out of the car with guns, and they demanded the money. One of the guards fumbled for his gun and dropped it and hid behind the car, and the other guard was a veteran police officer named Charles T. Linton, and he tried to immediately lock the cage of the armored car, but the 64-year-old man was shot to death, and he managed to return fire from his own gun as he fell. Charles Linton had been in the paper before. In 1882, he and his partner, Barney Cutler, arrested John Henry Holliday, also known as Doc Holliday, in Arizona on a warrant for murder that actually turned out to probably have been committed by Wyatt Earp. Nevertheless, his name was well known as one of the men on the force involved with taming the criminals of the Wild West, so his murder in front of the Denver Mint came as a huge shock. As he lay there on the ground, the masked bandits dumped money into their Buick and blasted the front entrance of the Mint as two guards from inside fired back, and alarms were set off. Joseph Olson, a clerk inside the Mint, was caught in the crossfire, but he managed to run across the scene with bullets whizzing around him and get out of the way to be seized by a guard. Witnesses say one of the bandits was hit because he dropped his gun and they saw him slowly making his way back to the getaway car looking like he was in pain. The entire incident lasted roughly two minutes. Another outlaw grabbed money packets totaling $100,000 while his hand dripped blood. And the bandits then sped off heading east on Colfax Avenue. Along the way, the bandit's car sideswiped a parked car that was then pushed into a fire hydrant, causing a geyser of water that created further confusion. They sped off east and disappeared, and police chief Rugg Williams started a search for the car as well as the monitoring doctor's offices and hospitals for any gunshot wound victims that may be coming in, and no one came in and they didn't find the car. 
The shotgun that was left at the scene by a bandit had fingerprints on it in blood, and they took them and determined that they did not match any of the fingerprints on file at the police department in Denver at the time. It was determined that over 100 shots had been exchanged in the shootout. The superintendent of the Denver Mint, Robert Grant, was quoted in the Rocky Mountain News reassuring everyone that the Mint was not robbed, an armored truck was robbed, and that the Mint in Denver was like a fortress that was so heavily guarded that bandits would never, ever invade it. Photographs of those bloody fingerprints were sent across the country and no matches were found. Denver Police Department offered $10,000 as a reward for the capture of the criminals, which was quite a lot of money back then. And Christmas shoppers around the time of the event refused to use or receive $5 bills for their shopping for the fear that it might be one of those stolen bills. A break in the case came in January of 1923, when the Buick touring car was found sitting in a garage behind a residence at 1631 Gilpin Street. The double garage was rented to two separate tenants who didn't know each other, and they didn't actually rent the house that this garage was attached to. The renter of one side of the garage became suspicious of the big car on the other side that had its interior curtains drawn, so he called police. And I'll post a picture of this car, but there are curtains on the interior windows of this car. When police arrived, they discovered the body of one of the criminals dead in the passenger seat in frozen solid. He apparently had been there since he stumbled into the seat from the Mint shootout and died in there and was left in there for about 27 days. He had a bullet hole through his heart and another one through his left hand. The floor of the getaway car was covered in revolver shells and a fully loaded rifle was in the back seat. The only money in the car was $2 and change that was found in the dead bandit's pocket. The renters inside the house had no idea who rented the garage, and the owner of the house provided a name that was given to him that ended up being false. Nobody knew who the frozen dead guy in the car was, so he was described by Chief Williams as probably an ex-con, very big and strong, and in his mind, obviously not of a high mental caliber. Prior investigators of the Denver Mint robberies that had happened in the past um, were brought in and they followed some hunches. One hunch was that this was an inside job like the others. And another hunch led them down the path of two Denver couples who had suddenly abandoned their Cap Hill apartments immediately prior to these crimes. One couple left behind a steamer trunk with instructions to deliver it to a sleazy Curtis Street boarding house. At the boarding house, they found two trunks belonging to both couples with the names Sloan and Burns. Both of the couples who fled were said to have been living suspiciously well with no clear source of income, according to their neighbors. Inside the trunks were photographs of the Sloan and Byrne families, and they determined that the dead frozen guy in the getaway car was James Sloan, a St. Paul mobster and triggerman. They discovered Burns was wanted in Grand Rapids for bank robbery and murder. His car was stored at a public garage under the name of a Denver bootlegger named Otto Schulz. Schulz quickly snitched and identified the wives of the two men as Omaha prostitutes. $5 bills that had been stolen began surfacing in St. Paul. Another possible break came when a Cincinnati banker said a gang representative came to sell him the stolen money for 90 cents on the dollar. 
So authorities decided that they were going to lay a trap. The banker proceeded to haggle with the gang's representative and accept the money for far less. And a meeting was arranged to exchange even more money where the cops would ambush the gang member. But this banker just couldn't keep quiet to the press about his importance in setting up this trap before the trap was even sprung. And the gangster never arrived because he heard about the trap in the news. And the investigation went cold from there. A dozen years passed until 1934, when the Denver Police Department announced that the crimes had been solved with no one ever being charged. The police insisted that the gang members involved were all accounted for, and they were either dead or in jail on other charges. Harold Burns, the leader, was dead. Frank Farland, also dead. James Sloan was the frozen corpse in the Buick. Jim Franklin was serving a life sentence at Alcatraz for the murder of a millionaire Oklahoma oilman. And James Clark was serving a life sentence in Indiana, state pen for a bank holdup. The two common law wives, and this is probably the weirdest part of this whole story, Margaret Burns and Florence Sloan, were found shot and burned together in a car near Red Wing, Minnesota in 1932. And that's the end of the story. There you have it. The great Denver Mint robbery of 1922, cinematic in almost every way, right down to the fates of those involved. I'll have a handful of pictures up for this crime, including the armored car and the inside of the getaway car. And check out those on Instagram at Colored Red Podcast and give me a follow. I also have a Patreon where if you donate just $1 per month, you'll get a sticker and a homemade card from me. And I'd be eternally grateful for you. That's patreon.com slash colored red podcast. Stay warm, stay safe, stay sane. Until next time. Mm-hmm.